everyone, and welcome back to the Towards Data Science Podcast. Now, it's no secret that the US and China are geopolitical rivals, and it's also no secret that that rivalry extends into AI, a domain that both countries consider to be extremely strategically critical. But in a context where potentially transformative AI capabilities are being unlocked every few weeks, many of which lend themselves to military applications with hugely destabilizing potential, you might hope that the US and China would have robust agreements in place to deal with the possibility of, I don't know, runaway escalation of conflict triggered by an AI-powered weapon that misfires. Even at the height of the Cold War, the US and Russia had robust lines of communication in place to de-escalate potentially nuclear conflict. So surely the US and China have something at least as good in place now, right? Well, they don't, and to understand the reason why and what we should do about it, I'll be speaking to Ryan Fedashik, a research analyst at Georgetown University's Center for Security and Emerging Technology, and an adjunct fellow at the Center for a New American Security, who recently wrote a fascinating article for Foreign Policy Magazine, where he outlines the challenges and the importance of US-China collaboration on AI safety. Ryan joins me to talk about the US and China's shared interest in building safe AI, how each side views the other, what realistic China AI policy looks like, and the obstacles that stand in the way on this episode of the Taurus Data Science Podcast. Hey everyone, Future Jeremy here. Just wanted to drop in with a quick disclaimer that Ryan recently joined the US Department of State where he's working on China-related issues and he wanted us to make it absolutely clear that the views that he's expressing on this podcast they don't necessarily reflect those of the State Department. In fact, we recorded this episode several weeks before he started his role there, so there really is quite a clean separation, but uh, I thought it would still be worth flagging for clarity. Okay, on with the episode. Well, I'm really happy to have you here. I knew I had to have you here, actually. The moment I read your fascinating foreign policy, uh, foreign policy magazine article, um, you cover a lot of ground there, and a lot of the focus of your work and of your thinking here has been around this idea of the U.S. and China and their shared interests in things like AI safety. Um, I think for people who are regular listeners of the show, you know, they know a lot about AI-related risk. We've talked about that a fair bit on the podcast. Uh, I'm curious, though. First off, like what what brings you to China as a core point of focus? Like what makes China a really important uh, focal point for foreign policy with respect to AI specifically? Sure. Uh, well, I think there are a, a number of reasons. Um, number one is that China's just been a huge focus of concern in Washington in recent years. Uh, the number of times that it's mentioned in, in for example, um, Department of Defense documents has skyrocketed. It's you know the the first in foremost peer competitor listed in the, uh, in the director of national intelligence's annual threat assessment. Um, there is a lot of concern, at least in this town, uh, about China. Uh, and I think that that also you know, reflects some reality where uh, when, when I first started at CSET at the Center for Security and Emerging Technology, uh, I came in with a lot of Russian knowledge and um, Russian language ability and expecting to do a lot of work on AI in Russia. And that's not to say that there's not a lot of there there. Uh, my colleague, Sam Bendet has written quite a bit about it, but just the fact of the matter is that the scale of spending is astronomically higher in China. AI is seen as a lodestar by many in the Chinese military as a way of leapfrogging capabilities of the United States. Uh, and there just seems to be a lot more concern 
uh, and progress in the technology being driven by private Chinese enterprises. Okay, and, and what do you think accounts for that that difference between China and Russia? Is it just size? Is it just the fact they have more resources to throw at this problem, or is there something else? I, I think that's frankly a big driver. Yes, there's just a much larger market, many more enterprises involved, uh, a lot higher scale of investment. Uh, the Russian government's also been very interested in AI. It's put out a lot of strategy documents. It's mobilized some funding behind it but just nowhere near to the scale, uh, at least that I've been able to see going on in China. Okay, and I think a last bit of framing before we dive into the meat and potatoes here is gonna be to understand like, how does China think about AI? Because I think there's a lot of fog of war going on here where people just aren't clear. Uh, it, there might be some confusion as well at the Chinese end, I guess, but like what, if you had to summarize the kind of Chinese, this is a big thing to summarize, but the Chinese strategy on AI, they're thinking about it, um, how, what would that summary be? It's a good question. I would break it down into a few parts. So I think at the technical level about what AI is and how it works, uh, there's it, it becomes a lot more clear and a lot more similar to the way that AI is developed in the United States, right? You're, you're still talking about machine learning models that are driven by access to compute, fed by certain quantities of data and have their parameters refined in some way, uh, algorithmically and in a way that conveys some novel capability that is presumably better than what humans are capable of achieving. I think almost everybody agrees on that. Uh, where you start getting into differences and diverges is the level of attention paid to AI uh, and the intended use cases uh, of different kinds of AI systems. And this is where I think AI is a particularly important technology for the Chinese government and for the Chinese military. It's listed as the number one technology to focus on in China's 14th five-year plan. Uh, it's the one of the top areas of investment, at least that I can see that the Chinese military is making in terms of science and technology. Uh, there's just a huge share of capital being invested in the technology. The way it's discussed uh, is with a lot of emphasis, including by very senior Chinese decision makers, including uh, Xi Jinping. And so I think that's really where uh, the focus on AI comes from. And or would you say that, that that investment, that emphasis has been translating in actual capabilities? Because, you know, I think a, a lot of people in the West, they, they look at our, our great labs, the DeepMinds, the OpenAIs, uh, the Anthropics, those sorts of, of labs are making great strides in safety in part, but mostly in capabilities. Um, what's your assessment of like the, the, the rivals or, or the equivalents in, uh, in China? Like we have, I guess, the Beijing Academy of AI, we have Huawei, we have Inspur Labs like that. Are they keeping pace? Are they, are they leading? Like what's, what's your sense of that? You know, this is, a, this is a, a really important point. It's a point of contention. And so I want to be careful about what I say and what kind of claims I make, because frankly, it's hard to compare. It's mm. really, really difficult. Uh, to say who's ahead in a given technology. Um, there are some significant differences, for example, between Huawei's like Pangu Alpha uh, and models unveiled by OpenAI, um, although both really seem to be boasting uh, some incredible capabilities. Um, I think though in, in the military sphere, in, in terms of military operations, there are real capabilities that are coming to the fore uh, that I'm seeing evidence of being purchased by the Chinese military. And so mm. that is why I focus on the subject. It's what gives me pause. And I feel very comfortable saying that. Uh, it's hard, of course, to compare them to what might be developed by contractors in the United States. Uh, but just looking at the sheer volume of contracts being awarded by Chinese military units, 
for capabilities that appear intelligent uh, or that are directly related to artificial intelligence. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of money being invested and it does seem like there are a lot of institutions involved boasting real capabilities, not just vaporware. And so what are some of those capabilities that you find most concerning when you see them in China? Sure. So uh, for context, uh, my team at CSET put out this study in uh, October of last year, looking at AI in the Chinese military, where we literally pulled down a bunch of contracts that had been awarded by Chinese military units. Uh, and some of the examples of systems we saw being purchased were this um, real-time uh, combat intelligence guidance system that was advertised uh, by a, a PLA contractor, it's a People's Liberation Army contractor, uh, called Data Exa. Uh, and it was advertising the ability to map in real time uh, US ships off of the southwestern coast of California, US RLA Burke class destroyers, trying to track the speed at which they're traveling, the orientation, feeding all of this information into basically a single common operational picture uh, that could then be given to PLA Navy units. And it's this kind of capability, this very uh, uh, high fidelity, uh, much improved intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance capability uh, that the Chinese military hopes will give it some leg up over the United States, or at least that will help it uh, compensate for some of its longstanding def uh, deficiencies relative to the United States. Let me give you one more example, uh, and that's in undersea warfare. There were a lot of systems that we saw being purchased by uh, the Chinese Navy and by the Strategic Support Force. That's the element of the PLA that focuses on uh, electronic warfare, uh, among other things, uh, for undersea vehicles that were capable of, or at least advertised as being able uh, to detect objects underwater, perhaps to patrol for US submarines. And you can imagine these kinds of platforms being fielded en masse uh, to try to understand the undersea landscape much better in a potential Taiwan contingency. Uh, so those are just two examples of some of the things we saw being purchased, which give me trepidation. Right. And, and that is obviously framed and naturally framed in a competitive kind of language. We have the idea of the U.S. developing technology, China developing technology, and kind of tracking each other's development and racing to build better and better, more capable AI systems and then fielding them faster. But your article also, in fact, it's mainly focused on this, this competition as being its own intrinsic source of risk. Can you, can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Well, frankly, I, I'm very worried about the state of the U.S.-China relationship, uh, and particularly as it relates to artificial intelligence. I think that we can look at, we, we could break it down into two elements, technical and political. So technically speaking, the United States and China are both interested in AI. They're both pouring a lot of money into this technology. Uh, the Department of Defense, of course, is making some huge investments in similar systems to those being pioneered in China, like autonomous vehicles, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, uh, predictive maintenance and logistics, electronic warfare, et cetera. Um, and the, the bottom line is that we're both trying to create the next best gadget uh, faster than the other person. And, and at some level that's understandable uh, because neither the United States nor China want to fall behind in something that's so incredibly important and which appears to be a, a, a core locus of uh, future conflict. But politically, the situation is quite dire and is going to create, I think, some incentives uh, for uh, uh, potentially cascading effects and problems, right? Uh, the vast majority of Americans today consider China to be a competitor or an enemy. 
Um, there haven't been very productive conversations between US and Chinese delegations when they've met, uh, including senior leaders like uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Uh, it was only in April of this year that he was actually able to meet his counterpart in Beijing, Xu uh, Ziliang, who is the senior vice chairman of China's Central Military Commission. Previously, he had been relegated to meeting with uh, lower officials that were not actually his counterpart, like uh, Defense Minister Wei Fenghe. This is getting into uh, really in the weeds stuff about Chinese politics and the Chinese political system. Uh, but the bottom line is that the, the fundamental gulf in communication between the US and Chinese governments has meant that we haven't really been able to make headway on very basic issues like establishing channels for crisis communication, uh, which we could rely on in the event of a technical failure of an AI system. And so there are these uh, confounding effects between the technical and political that are increasing the level of risk in the relationship today. And could I get you to kind of sketch out a very rough scenario of, of the sort that might uh, cause this sort of risk to materialize? Like when we talk about this lack of communication, there's no big red phone, for example, as, as I recall your article saying, say between the, the US president and Xi Jinping on you know issues related to AI risk or, or misaligned systems or things like that. Could you kind of sketch that out so we have a concrete thing to think about? Sure. So uh, let me say there are two things in particular that worry me, two futures um, that I think are avoidable uh, that are potentially caused by the introduction of artificial intelligence into military operations. Um, the first is that there's some operator or technical error that precipitates a cascading politico-military crisis. Uh, and so you can imagine something very basic. Let, let's, you know, let's walk back to January of 2021 when the United States uh, and Iran were a, a, in a period of um, uh, uh, instability. Uh, and I believe Iran shot down uh, a US Reaper drone. There was some concern at the time that that might provoke a US response. Uh, in a situation like that, uh, it's very politically costly for uh, whoever is in charge of the United States at the time to just fail to respond uh, or to fail to respond with uh, force that is deemed sufficiently appropriate by the American public. Uh, and so this creates a, a politically costly situation that might prompt some kind of escalation, some tit for tat response that continues to spiral uh, into an unsustainable level of casualty or, or loss. Um, so that's something that I'm worried about happening between the United States and China. You could imagine an autonomous system uh, firing accidentally on some civilian airliner transiting the Strait of Taiwan. Uh, that's something that we want to avoid happening at all costs. Uh, the second scenario uh, is that states might feel pressured to develop uh, automated systems for more consequential decisions. Uh, and so, you know, at, at some level, there's risk involved in any kind of machine learning system you introduce into a, a combat environment, right? It's making life and death uh, decisions at some level, uh, but it, at a very, very low level of conflict that might be acceptable to some people, right? Uh, the former um, uh, uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense, Bob Work, or Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Bob Work, um, has talked about AI systems uh, being used in combat uh, and actually making better decisions than humans. And, and basically he's advanced this notion that this is not just an acceptable level of risk, uh, but actually there are some systems, particularly in target recognition and fire control that could reduce civilian casualties, that it would actually be ethical to deploy those systems 
and even unethical not to deport. Uh, mm. But as you move into larger and larger levels of potential impacts of miscalculation, then I think you start to enter a situation uh, where an AI system should not be deployed. The largest being nuclear command and control. I think almost everybody can and should agree uh, that a reinforcement learning system that is learning and adapting its own parameters of engagement in real time should not be able to fire a nuclear weapon. There's just too many, uh, there are too many unknowns, there's too much that could go wrong, and the potential cost is too high to justify that level of decision. And so the gradient between uh, you know, helping identify a target uh, at a very individual tactical level of combat to thermonuclear warfare is so huge, deciding where to draw the line of what is an acceptable level of automation is a challenge in both the United States and in China. It's really interesting to hear you kind of go over that spectrum of risk because it does harken back to a lot of the conversations we've had on the podcast with folks from the AI safety and AI alignment communities where they talk about making sure get, getting robust guarantees of the performance of AI systems that they won't fail in certain ways and how effectively technically impossible that is currently. I mean, to, to your point, like there really is no way to guarantee that an AI will not fail in profoundly counterintuitive ways. We can do all the testing and evaluation we want. We can have all the metrics we want, but ultimately those metrics are only as good as the imagination of the testing and evaluation team. And you can always find situations where an AI gets put in an environment that's just slightly subtly different from the one it was trained for and tested on. And, uh, and that can lead to completely wonky, wonky outputs. So all the metrics in the world end up being as good as useless in, in those situations. But how do we get to a point where where we're actually having these these conversations constructively between two really two adversaries at this point, I think it's fair to say, the U.S. and China, at least rivals. Like, how do you how do you bring two parties at the table? And I mean, does China even have a willingness to do this? I've sort of heard a lot of mixed messaging on that. This this is you know the the multi billion dollar question, uh, right? Jeremy, and and I'm glad you're asking it. And, and my honest answer is kind of pessimistic. Right. So I've been involved in conversations and, and trying to brainstorm some taxonomy of risk or, or some method of doing arms control for AI. I'm very uh, empathetic to that mission. I used to work at the Arms Control Association and, and have been involved in some similar efforts for uh, conventional and, and nuclear munitions. But when it comes to AI, you know, it's so difficult to control. It's a digital technology. And, and my honest assessment is that neither China nor the United States are going to adopt some level of arms control or risk reduction that is not squarely within their existing interest. And so figuring out what those interests are ought to be the focus of people in the academic and the activist community and the AI safety community, and not honestly, in my opinion, on trying to, for example, ban lethal autonomous weapon systems. Right, right. That just doesn't seem like a politically tenable position. So let, let me give you some more context. Um, you know, I've, I've had the chance to speak on maybe like a half dozen occasions with uh, folks in China, um, some retired military leaders, uh, some AI engineers, some people from the academic and legal community there uh, during these kind of track 1.5 and track two dialogues. Um, the, the bottom line is we've tried talking about banning or proscribing AI for specific applications, uh, like you know, a, a moratorium on introducing artificial intelligence to nuclear command and control systems. We've tried talking about uh, coming to an agreement not to poison one another's data sets in ways that might 
uh, unnecessarily risk um, loss of human life. We've tried talking about banning the use of automated weapon systems in certain geographic areas like the Taiwan Strait or even in less sensitive areas uh, around the Middle East for the United States and for China. None of these things have panned out. And that's because they are measures that require a huge amount of trust between the United States and China, which might require divulging some kind of information that could uh, jeopardize state security in either country. And so political leaders in both of our countries are simply not going to go for it. That's just my read of the situation. Uh, and so the next best thing that I think we can do is at least the bare minimum, right? I, I say in this foreign policy article that you alluded to earlier, there are three things that we ought to be able to do to prevent um, these two kind of uh, uh, risky situations that I've outlined. The first is we ought to have clear statements on AI test and evaluation. Uh, now, the United States has adopted, for example, AI ethical principles for its Department of Defense. Uh, it has a directive, Directive 3009, on autonomy and weapon systems. I know you've talked about some of these issues before. Uh, just last week, the Department of Defense released a 47-page responsible AI strategy talking about how exactly it's going to make sure that its AI systems are up to snuff and meet those uh, principles and guidelines uh, at a very technical level. Now in China, I do want to be fair, there are ethical norms and standards that have been developed and promulgated for the development of artificial intelligence. And I think that's fantastic. Uh, in 2019, uh, China released governance principles for what it calls a new generation of artificial intelligence. There are eight of them. One of them is about safety and controllability. Uh, and it basically reads almost the same as what you would find in the United States. And again, in 2021, uh, the Chinese government released ethical norms for a new generation of artificial intelligence, uh, which are at a higher level. Uh, they're slightly more vague, but there are four of them, uh, and they read very similar to the US DOD principles. The problem, the problem is political. It's the idea that we don't know if the Chinese military is actually bound by the principles being promulgated by the Chinese government mm. for the development of AI in the private sector. I don't know the answer to that question. That's something I've asked people in China and I've gotten kind of dodgy replies on and I'd like more clarity, uh, but it's not something that's been very forthcoming. So certainly it seems like communication is just like, even at the, the bare bones level of understanding what frameworks apply to the Chinese policy ecosystem uh, it would be a big help to begin with. It would be a huge help. And it's something that Maybe it's just me, but I don't see and feel that in my conversations uh, with Chinese counterparts. And it is really a source of frustration uh, and opacity, uh, I think, in, in U.S. decision-making circles. So you alluded to one of the themes that you highlighted that I think makes a lot of sense. You know, we, we talked about, um, I think we had somebody on uh, a few, maybe a few years ago now, talking about this idea of banning lethal autonomous weapons laws and uh, international bans, that sort of thing. At the time, I thought this was a very compelling idea, but the more I've kind of done this sort of exploration, looked into how are the, the mechanics of this relationship unfolding, I, I, I very much sort of, uh, what you're saying here rings true with all the, the, the little things that I've, I've done. You know, it's not like I have any expertise here, but um, it definitely seems like because we have a continuum problem here, there's like a spectrum of gradually escalating autonomy that you can climb up. And at every stage, you can convince yourself, oh, it's you know, just a little extra increment of autonomy, no problem here. And kind of convince yourself that it's okay to take that next step and that next step. 
because there's no clear moment where you go, okay, this is this now constitutes like automating a strategically important system. There's no clear precipice where we go, whoa, whoa, like this is the point we need to have that conversation. Um, is there, I guess I, I wonder if there's almost a, a way of, of manufacturing some kind of cliff like that, if that's even a fruitful possibility or, or if you think that's a ridiculous notion. I don't think it's ridiculous. I, I think the the most politically tenable point at which we can draw that line is automated nuclear launch, right? Like there are, there are just some things, uh, I, I guess it's it's a situation where you know it when you see it, right? Where yeah. that, that sounds really bad um, and we should avoid doing that. It just doesn't seem like automating that kind of decision uh, is in the interest of any state, right? Because it would incur such massive cost and risk to the, the state that's deploying it. Um, so that, that's one reason why, for example, Jack Shanahan, uh, who was the director of the Joint AI Center in the, Pen in the Pentagon uh, in 2019, uh, spoke publicly at a conference in the United States and said that there was really no situation where the United States would want to integrate AI with nuclear command and control systems. Um, that was a statement which I thought was very momentous and significant. Uh, it's something that I've tried to goad uh, uh, other Chinese officials into adopting or saying, um, and they have not gone for it publicly, which I, I am concerned by, uh, as it does seem like privately, there's really no reason to adopt something like that. Now, now that's not to say, let me pause really quickly uh, and let me go back and say that, you know, Russia, for example, has technically on paper an automated nuclear launch system called the dead hand. Um, and you, you could imagine a scenario where given a certain set of parameters, no communication with the executive, uh, you know, blinding flashes of light, glass shattering all over the place, you assume a nuclear launch has gone off and therefore you automate the decision to launch retaliatory nuclear weapons. Right. That's something that Russia currently has, but it's not based on machine learning. It's not based on artificial intelligence. It's not learning parameters in real time, uh, which could you know, break or, or due to some unknown technical error. Now, my and, opinion and, is- and they're, also, they're also like clearly human understandable uh, kind of constraints, right? I mean, it's not some black box, opaque bunch of parameters that just predict something for no reason. Yeah, yeah. That's right, that's right. And, and honestly, I don't think that Russia should have the system, right? If I were the right. Russian president, I would think this would be a little bit crazy. But in as much as Russia does, we have to acknowledge that reality um, and just draw the line one step below, which is yeah. let's not introduce AI into the equation. Um, and so I, I think that's a reasonable line. That's something that I'm glad that the United States has drawn. I think it's in the United States interest to draw. I think it's in China's interest to draw, and I'm not sure why they haven't. So, yeah, I mean, that, that is, it does seem like a very natural line to draw and a very potentially fruitful one to start with too, because once you have some trust built up on that issue, hopefully you can start to expand that, that uh, sort of circle outwards. Um, it also kind of has me wonder about other potential areas of collaboration and, and not, to, not to sound too naive about this and the prospects, but you know, when we talk about the reliability of AI systems and this idea of AI safety, AI alignment, AI robustness, making sure that an AI doesn't just basically go haywire the minute you put it in a mildly new situation, it kind of seems like the US and China have a shared interest in making sure that the AI systems that they build and deploy are aligned, do have this property of robustness. And, um, and I, I mean, I wonder, so what, one question I might have is like, 
if you see any potential in, in kind of collaboration on that topic, I guess that would require us to be able to cleave off safety from capabilities research, which maybe is, is not such a trivial thing to do. Um, but, but I think there are analogies for this, right? Like we, in the, the Cold War, the U.S. shared uh, nuclear safety secrets with Russia, basically because both sides had this shared interest in not having the world go boom. Um, do you see any potential for an approach like that, or is that something based on the conversations you've been having with folks in China that just wouldn't be in the cards? This is another great question, um, and I've, I've heard of this analogy before of like the permissive action link, uh, which is on nuclear weapons. It's, it's a safeguard that we deliberately proliferated. We gave that technology uh, to multiple states, including Pakistan at the time, even though the United States was opposed to its nuclear weapon tests because it was in the interest to share it. But I'm just not aware of any kind of analog uh, that is one size fits all multi-purpose for AI systems. Uh, and, and I think talking about and actually carving out safety protocols, as I said before, it requires divulging just too much information about the capabilities themselves mm. uh, to be worth doing that. The, the, the next best thing that I think we should do, honestly, is unilateral statements about what our safety and um, testing processes even are, right? So I, you know, maybe am biased, but I just genuinely believe that the U.S. Department of Defense uh, cares about AI safety and wants its systems to work as intended and not to kill civilians, right? That's something that many people in the United States do not actually believe is true for China. Uh, for, you know, they either attribute it to malice of China's political leaders uh, I think a more compelling explanation, though, is that there are pressures in the Chinese political system yeah. that reward the speed of deploying new and advanced capabilities uh, and succeeding in program management uh, that maybe undervalue uh, methods of safety. And so when I ask people in, chi in, in China, like, you know, do you have anything like DOD Directive 3009? Will you ever develop or release it? That would just be nice to see. It doesn't even have to be aligned with that of the United States. This is not a substitute for uh, regulating the development of AI in international fora, which is an argument that I sometimes hear. This is just something that should be in your interest and that is also in our interest. And we ought to be releasing these unilateral guidelines. And so the fact that it isn't clear if these principles apply to the PLA is concerning to me. And it's something that I've raised multiple times and kind of been brushed off. And why do you think, I mean, this is an impossible question to answer a priori, but I'm, I'm just curious to kind of chew the fat on this. Like, why do you think that is specifically? It, like, it does seem like it would be in the PLA's interest to say, hey, these are our guidelines that, that engenders trust around the world. It reduces the likelihood of catastrophic escalation for all the reasons you described. Is it just that, like, it's a centrally planned economy and there's no metric specified for this? Nobody's getting promoted based on this kind of risk reduction, or is it something else? My, my charitable view of this is that, you know, if, if I'm sitting in Beijing and I'm seeing the United States release these responsible AI principles, right, my argument is that that's an effort to whitewash or undermine or suck the wind out of proposals at the UN group of government experts to seriously regulate the development of lethal autonomous weapons. And so I think, you know, unilateral action, my talking point is unilateral action in any situation like this is bad uh, and should be frowned upon. We, we need to work together. We need enforceable guidelines and, and nothing short of that is acceptable. And so that's the argument that I think, uh, that, that's where I think 
Chinese counterparts are coming from. And, and sorry, just, just to be clear that I'm understanding the, the rationale there. So the idea would be the U.S. is doing this unilaterally in the hopes of uh, reducing interest at the level of the UN for forcing all nations to kind of abide by a universal set of standards. So the U.S. can say like, hey, we're already doing this. Like, don't bother us with this. That's sort of the idea. Right, right. Okay. That's, that's how I believe Chinese counterparts are interpreting what the United States is doing. I don't think that's right at all. I, I think that the United yeah. States independently seriously treats AI like a, a, a technology that needs to be developed responsibly and cares whether its systems work or not. Um, and so in the United States, like conversely, the perspective is, why won't China do this? It's kind of concerning that the Chinese military just won't say, yeah, don't worry, we test our systems. Here's how we do it. We make sure they meet some kind of guidelines uh, in a way that is in any way analogous to anything the DOD is doing. Um, you know, if we had that, I think that would make me feel a lot better. I would sleep better at night. I think other people in Washington would too. Uh, I've asked for it before though, and, and just kind of been met with um, some sniping, so. And what, what do you think the U.S. could do to kind of counteract that perspective that the Chinese, are, are there things that it could do? Could it put stuff forward in the U.N. voluntarily or? I think, I think it's difficult um, because, you know, my, my honest assessment of international efforts to regulate AI is that they are, are really struggling, um, you know, without projecting my own views onto the situation. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's in the interest of the United States to bind itself in a straitjacket, right? There are too many memories of like the, um, uh, uh, the uh, intermediate range nuclear forces treaty with Russia and other situations where the United States has felt cheated. Like it's basically sacrificed some capability that might have been actually very useful in a conflict uh, right. and not been met with the same reciprocity from Russia or China. Um, and likewise, you know, from China's perspective, uh, the Chinese delegation has put forward some proposals to ban uh, lethal autonomous weapons, but they've defined them in ways, I think you've talked about this on the podcast before, but they've defined them in ways that are extremely narrow. Uh, they're only talking about systems that cannot be recalled once launched uh, and which, you know, uh, uh, create some uh, uh, disproportional impact uh, potentially on civilians. So, the, the, the definitions they're using and the systems they're trying to ban basically wouldn't actually include almost anything the United States right. or China are developing. Uh, and so the, the view in Washington is that that's just disingenuous. Uh, and so basically like the, the view in Washington is that China is disingenuous about its efforts to ban uh, laws at the UN. Uh, and China's view is that the United States has no interest in this and it's totally disingenuous in whatever it says. And so really there's just a total impasse. Um, so it, I'm not that optimistic. It, it's almost like it's exactly what you'd expect when two parties uh, who are historical adversaries don't talk at all and don't have a, a channel of communication. Um, I'd, I'd be fascinated to hear your insights, your perspective on what communication looks like between those two parties. Because there, there are a lot of different ways, some formal, some less formal, that two different countries like this can communicate. What are some of the channels, you know, you mentioned you talk, talk to some old Chinese officials, folks who maybe are not still in the PLA or you know, kind of faintly affiliated with it. Um, so what are some of those channels? Are there any of those that seem particularly fruitful or are they all kind of awash at this point? Uh, I think, you know, maybe I'm naive, but I think that everybody learns something from communication. Um, every 
uh, meeting that we have, no matter how low level, no matter how unofficial, uh, provides some data point on like how people in China are actually thinking about the technology and actually trying to mitigate risk. And I think that's really valuable and should continue. Uh, and so I jumped at the opportunity to, to speak with folks in China, and, and I know a lot of other people in Washington feel the same. Um, the, the problem has, there are really two issues. One problem is in translating kind of agreements and conversations at lower and less official levels, uh, like those that I'm part of, up to you know, real senior decision makers who are capable of doing something, right? So there, I've, I've talked to folks in China who are like, yeah, automating nuclear launch is bad. We would never do that. But then the question is, well, what, what is lost? Like, why is General Wei Fenghe like unable or unwilling to make that statement in public? Right. Like, is it that the counterparts I'm talking to don't actually have their ear? Uh, is it that they don't actually have any kind of influence in policymaking circles? I'm just trying to figure out what the disconnect is. I think that's also true of um, uh, conversations with you know engineers who appreciate the risks of AI systems, right. who, who who know about the the problem with like distribution shifts um, or or with um, uh, specification gaming or any other number of AI failure modes, uh, but getting senior decision makers who are looking at like the number of battle force ships and trying to make budget decisions, yeah. trying to convince them of the problems with AI systems is not an easy task. Yeah, it almost seems like there's a cultural political um, difference there that really manifests at this level where, where all the rhetoric, the Chinese end seems to be, you know, veer, veering on like imperialistic, uh, certainly aggressive in, uh, in, its, in its approach to the US and the West. And then you've got in the US much more attention to like human life and, and, and protecting kind of civilians and, and also just generally having a higher bar for, for safety standards just historically. Uh, maybe maybe one of the the uh, consequences of being an emerging power is things just happen so fast you don't have the chance to really think about long-termism and robustness. Um, I guess uh, I wonder if, if there's like at the, the political level in the U.S. if there's a way of of um, kind of fast-tracking that conversation. Like, is this something that you imagine the White House would benefit from tackling head-on in a louder and prouder way, so to speak, or uh, or is that not a channel that would be uh, that would be fruitful? I, th I think I think this is a challenging question. So, so let me start by saying I agree with the kind of cultural uh, uh, element that you've articulated just now. Personally, you know, I I try to be as charitable and as strategically empathic as possible um, to try to meet uh, Chinese interlocutors where they are, and, and you know, whatever they say, fine. If, if that's the reason why they don't want to meet. Uh, I, I accept that, um, but I, I don't know what more the United States can be doing. I know that folks in the United States have on multiple occasions tried to establish track one conversations, uh, military to military, government to government with folks in China about AI risks. Um, and it's not something that the Chinese side has been willing to go for. In fact, um, Greg Allen, who was the director of strategy at the Jake, uh, recently put out a piece uh, for CSIS on this exact issue. There were multiple occasions where he tried to forge these connections and just was met with radio silence on the Chinese side. And so I don't know what more could be done. You know, the, the only other alternative I can think of is more naming and shaming, as you say, from the White House. But I just, I don't know how productive that would really be for the U.S.-China relationship at this point. 
Yeah, I mean, so many almost personal cultural complexities playing into this and, and strategic ones too. And it, it does sometimes seem, I mean, you know, I've, I've had a lot of conversations with um, like Chinese researchers, not, not policy folks, but folks at the research level. And it does seem, while there is a general awareness that there's something AI safety related that's worth focusing on, when you talk to capabilities researchers, folks who are coming out with you know, systems like CogView, for example, um, or Efficient Zero, which came out uh, in 2021, you talk to these folks and it kind of seems like they're, they're aware of the buzzwords, but just not of the actual, like, they don't have that same vocabulary. You just mentioned, you know, robustness and specific, specification gaming and that sort of thing. Um, it kind of seems like the, the awareness level, even among the research class, is more superficial too. And while it's, it's better certainly than the strategic political class, that seems to be a gap to fill as well. I wonder if, first off, if, if you concur, concur with that, that may not be something you've spent a lot of time looking into. Um, but second, if, if that implies that education sort of across, like is collaboration a good thing? Like at what point uh, is, is inter-Pacific inter collaboration, so to speak, a, a bad idea or a good idea in that context? Ooh, uh, yeah, you, you've, you've touched on the real meat of, uh, of the, the policy problem these days. But no, I, the, on the question of safety and how seriously Chinese researchers take it, I wish I could tell you more. I think you're in a better position to talk about this than I am. I just don't have the same links to the research community. But this is something that I've heard from colleagues who do focus uh, on testing and evaluation and on AI safety. Um, that you know, there's concern that, to some degree, like in the United States and other countries, but but you know, really to a new level, there's this whitewashing going on or this ethics washing uh, of AI systems, latching on to um, words like responsible. Uh, AI development um, without really putting in the due diligence required to make sure that they are uh, robust and, and going to work as intended. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's good to know. Um, now, now in terms of the, the collaboration across, like uh, one policy question, I guess, would be, is it good? Is it good to have researchers at Berkeley collaborating with you know, researchers at Tsinghua University with like open PLA affiliations, say, um, you know, maybe you could argue, I guess, that it's good for cross-contamination in terms of exposing folks in China to more safety mindset stuff. Um, but at the same time, if that helps with proliferation, if it helps with uh, with capabilities development, maybe, maybe not such a good thing. Not sure if you have a take on this, but that'd be a, I'd be really curious to hear one uh, if you do have one. You know, this uh, this is this is the question. Um, and I wish I could give you a, a more concrete answer like, you know, ban collaboration or like, no, open right. collaboration is the only way, but it's totally situation, right? So 10 years ago, uh, maybe it wouldn't have mattered as much, um, but now every kind of potential uh, opportunity for collaboration, I think, is being viewed as transactional and probably should be. Um, in what is what is the value proposition from engaging with this institution in China, uh, and what is the potential level of risk? And if you're working on, you know, nat natural language processing. Maybe you say, yeah, that's that's fine. That's you know probably not the same level of risk as, for example, computer vision in potentially contributing to um, ongoing genocide in Xinjiang uh, or in like military relevant capabilities that could be used to target the United States. Yeah, NLP uh, uh, might be used in some kind of um, intelligence processing system, and I've seen that used. I've seen the Chinese army buy those kinds of systems for that reason. Uh, but maybe you say the risk is low enough where it's worth it to collaborate on that topic. But I think there are certain subfields, computer vision especially, uh, where I really question 
uh, the value add and the utility, even if a Chinese institution is quote unquote ahead of wherever mm. uh, the United States might be or wherever uh, Harvard or, or Berkeley might be. I just don't know if it's worthwhile um, to actually get that kind of technology, knowing where it came from, knowing what it could contribute to. Uh, I think we're entering very dangerous territory in the relationship. Now, let me also add a caveat here. Not everybody shares this view. Um, I know there are a lot of people in the United States who still cling to the, the idea, and I empathize with it too, the open international research environment is the lifeblood of not just the US-China relationship, but of global science and technology. And we should try to preserve it at all costs. I understand and appreciate that. And I argue that very frequently. But in the case of China, in the case of high-end research institutions, it is getting really, really hard to make that argument. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, it's funny. This, this certainly does resonate. When you talk about the idea of siloed kind of research areas that you know, maybe it's okay for, for NLP, maybe it's less okay for, for vision, I wonder what impact you know, the, the, the trend towards highly scaled transformer models uh, has today. Because we're starting to see this sort of homogenization, this idea of like all AI really converging on a small set of highly scalable models. We're seeing you know, with DeepMind's Gato, great example of a single AI system that can do everything from language generation to images. And so this starts to kind of blur the line between disciplines. Computer vision is not necessarily separable anymore from language and language is not necessarily separable from planning and game playing and so on. Um, so I, I wonder if that kind of bodes, bodes ill for our ability to have any kind of international collaboration on this, on this topic. I fear you're right. I don't have anything else to say on that, but I fear that you're right, especially as we get better systems that are more multimodal in more efficient ways. Okay, well, on that extremely uplifting note, um, actually, may, maybe that's a good question. If you had to give your most uplifting <laughs> take on all this, what, what, is the, what is the best case scenario? What are the steps that kind of could materialize to, to make this all turn out the way we hope it would? Sure. No, I, I, I've been real doom and gloom this entire conversation, but I do want to say there are, there, there are opportunities that I, there are stones we haven't unturned yet mm. um, that now we're being forced to maybe because they are uh, the ones that we wanted to, to go to last. But let me just reiterate, I guess, one final kind of interesting question that I've been toying with. And it's the idea that, look, the United States wants to break China's military AI systems. I think that's a fair statement to make. I don't think mm -hmm. that's very objectionable. I think the same is true in China. China's military wants to break the toys that the Department of Defense in the United States is developing. The, the question, the interesting problem is that there are certain scenarios uh, where we want to know exactly how a Chinese AI system is going to respond if we do X, you know, if, if there is some kind of adversarial example used uh, to try to, to cause that system to malfunction. The question is identifying under which circumstances we have an interest in making Chinese AI systems fail gracefully and vice right. versa. And, and I don't know, I have not seen very good research on this or it's, it's more of a thought experiment than anything else right now, uh, but trying to identify, you know, when do we actually have an interest in making sure that one another's weapon systems or you know, intelligence or targeting systems continue to function even under duress and, and trying to build toward those capabilities. That's something that's just totally foreign, I think, to the conversation right now in both Washington and Beijing, uh, but I think would be a real point of focus and, and could actually yield 
some kind of actionable result because we're at the point now where nobody's going to act outside of their interest. There's no mutual trust, but identifying those nakedly self-interested positions uh, is maybe our only chance. Very interesting. Okay. Well, with that note, thank you, Ryan, so much for what a fascinating conversation. I mean, I, I think there's so much here for people to dig into. People should be more aware of this as well, including researchers. You know, you should be aware of what the impact of your research is, what it means to collaborate in 2022 with any other country. I mean, you should ask yourself those questions. We talk a lot about fair trade sourcing of our coffee. We talk a lot about where our t-shirts come from. Maybe it's time to have a similar conversation about artificial intelligence. Um, Ryan, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me for this. It's a lot of fun. Thanks. Same to you.